Hello and welcome once again to Straight Talk, your intermittent podcast of political thought. I'm, my name is Scott Wyant and today I'll be speaking with Sarah Scanlon. She is the principal and founder at Southern Strategies, the former state director of Bernie Sanders for president, and the former national LGBTQ outreach director at Bernie Sanders for president. This is going to be a little bit different uh, interview today because Sarah is, works behind the scenes. She's not out front running for, for office. She's working behind the scenes to get people elected and to train the, the future progressive leaders. Sarah Scanlon, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no problem. Tell me a little bit about your background. You have an interesting political background. <laughs> interesting political background. So my background started in the, uh, I guess in the early, in the 70s. And um, unbeknownst to many folks, my parents, my mother was very active in the Arkansas Democratic Party and was actually appointed to something that was called the Institute of Politics that was created by Bill Clinton and run by Walter Nunn. And so that was like, that, that was like the first, my first interaction with the whole political uh, you know, idea. My family's always been political and that my grandfather worked on LBJ's races in the 40s and was active in Texas politics. So it was always just part of my life. The really weird stuff is that I ended up leaving Arkansas when I was in my mid-20s. I wasn't active politically at the time, but I went to, I ended up going to Seattle. And in Seattle, even in Seattle, I wasn't very active for the first eight years I lived there. But there was like this switch that went on for me. And I started working on a city council race. And then I went from the city council race. At the time, I was just like, recognizing who I was as a person. So there were two anti-gay initiatives that were being brought over from Oregon into Washington that would have dictated that the state could not recognize or offer any protections for people who identified as gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, lesbian. So um, this was issue nine that had passed in Oregon and had been repealed and same issue that was in the in the works in Colorado and had been challenged in the courts. So I got very active on that campaign. That was like the first, my my real first foray into paid political work. So I, I was a I was part of the finance team of that campaign. So I ended up helping raise. I think I was when I did the math, I was responsible for having raised. I think $400,000, which in the 80s was, or 80s and early 90s, uh, was really significant amount of money. It is so now, right? But this was even before the signatures had been turned in. We ended up running a good enough program, and I was in a significant enough program, that they did not get the signatures necessary to get the issues on the ballot. So we just basically stopped them in their tracks. Yeah, that's a victory right there. Oh, yeah, no, it was the best kind of victory. One thing we knew at the time, and we had seen and experienced, was that, you know, when these issues are on the ballot, the, the instances of homophobia and gay crime, like, yeah, go, go through up, the roof. They spike. Yeah. That was one of the main reasons we were pushing so hard so that they don't get the signatures. Because in this entire process, we'd like to be as short as possible. We don't want to have any ability to, we, don't, we didn't want to put anybody at harm. Right. 
basically. Yeah, let, let, um, so let we're me, pretty let, lucky in that. Let, let me back up just a little bit and uh, explain to the listeners. Your work in politics is not at the podium. You work behind the podium in, in most campaigns, correct? I absolutely. I'm behind the scenes. Yeah. I am not. You don't know folks like me, actually, you know, what we do or what or that we actually exist. Right. I'm never I'm never one to speak to the press. I'm never one to do anything like that. Um, my job is in the in in doing what we call field work. So my job is connecting the issue or the candidate with the voters. Right. That that's and, one, that's one reason why I wanted to speak with you because most of the people that I interview are the politicians themselves. Yeah. I feel like the people who work behind the politician they can be just as interesting yeah. and have have some better stories to tell than the politicians themselves. And they, <laughs> nine times out of ten, they know more about the mechanics of of a pol- political race than the the person out there trying to, you know, get trying to get on TV. So yeah, so I wanted the candidate to spe- has two jobs. You know, just to, there's there's hundreds of jobs that have to be done, but the candidates have two jobs. Their jobs for the most part, are to raise money and to talk to voters. That's the only thing that they need to do. And everything that they need, they do has to answer the question, how does this help me win? So when there's request for time, when there's a request for appearances, you know, the candidate and their team have to weigh whether or not that appearance or that time spent is actually going to get them to the question, you know, the answer of how does this help me win or is this going to be money or is this going to be votes? Right. Right. Um, but there are all the other jobs that go along with that, right? It's the it's the processing, the tracking, the engaging, the recruiting, the phoning, the texting, the the you know, knocking on doors, everything that goes behind that is is necessary to implement the plan that's in place to help somebody win. Yeah. It's not just you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I'm going to run for office. It's, okay, if we're going to run for office, we're going to have to raise so much money and if we, if we, to afford to support the staff that we're going to need to actually be able to reach the voters that we need. Right, and when, you, um, when, you're, or, when you're running you know, at the level of, of Congress or Governor or Secretary of State, you really need a team behind you. It can't, it, well, it could be a one-person race, but you're, you're going to have a much higher struggle to get up that hill. Yeah, it kind of it's kind of impossible um, to do when you're at the smaller level races, like you're looking at quorum court, or you're looking at JP, or you're, and you're looking at city school boards and stuff like that. You still always need volunteers to help you because that's just that's how people know that you're actually real. Um, but you can do it without a big machine, right? But, most of the time, though, you got to have a big machine because it's the machine that distills talking points, that says message, you know, sets the calendar up, sets the message up, sets the sets the con- voter contact goals, sets the you know all the little pieces of instrumentation that to go into um, you know accomplishing the task at hand. Right. So your work in Seattle, a lot of people think of, of like Washington and Oregon and California as being just totally democratic strongholds <laughs> but they <laughs> but they don't really realize that when you get in the eastern part of those states or in the central right. part of california it's like a whole never, another world 
I mean, those people over there, they're like the, they're like the rednecks that you meet in, in, you know, in the deep in the Ozarks. It, so you actually, you accomplish quite a bit just by keeping something like that off the ballot in a state the size. At that time. Yes, especially yeah, at that time. at that time we actually did. So that that's rather amazing. Because Seattle is divided between by a mountain range um, between what they call the coastal region, which is the I-5 corridor going north and south, to the rest of the state. So the rest of the state is this high plains desert red, that is and very it's red, it's, it's and red very, country, too, isn't it? Lots of farmland. They, you know, they're number one apple-producing region. They do a lot of wheat. They do a lot of corn. I mean, they, they, it's just a high plains farming area. And they have, they probably sell the same amount of uh, international harvesters that they sell John Deere's down here, right? After your success in Seattle with that ballot initiative, you were probably uh, feeling pretty high at, at that time. What did you do after that? So, oh my God, I got kind of crazy because uh, I started... The next thing I did was I worked as a campaign manager for a woman running woman running for state representative and in Seattle it's very democratic and so she was running in an open she was she was running in an open primary with seven guys so it was uh, Mary Lou Dickerson and these other seven candidates and she we went on to win that race and there was no Republican running against her and so she went into, she became a, a member of the legislature, and in Washington, you get staff. And so she asked me to be her legislative assistant, and I did that for, I think, three years, and I was bored out of my skull. I would <laughs> I would always get into trouble because I would be, like, pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable for staff to do versus, um, because, you know, I was a state employee at that time, so right. I would always get into trouble for doing too much. Yeah, I'm doing stuff I wasn't supposed to. Violating the Hatch Act, right? (laughs) What? Violating the Hatch Act. Every opportunity I got. (laughs) So the most fun I had, though, was doing opposition research. And I, and myself and another person would would actually track uh, all the bills that were being introduced by these repugnant people that were, and and everything that they said that was stupid. So that was the first time I I was, like, happy to have to be able to be in that kind of environment because I got to hear firsthand, you know, everything, every time they said something stupid. So when the, in the education committee, I, ver, I absolutely heard somebody say in the, and this is a legislator, mind you, who'd been elected, who said, who stood up in the education committee and said, if English is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? This was an argument for the for the making English the official language of the country or the state. I'm like, really? You, I, did I just seriously hear that? And I and I made sure because we had speakers in our offices that we could actually hear what was happening down in the committee rooms. And sure enough, other somebody else came in and said, "Did he just say that?" <laughs> yeah, oh, English that, is good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for me. That's classic. <laughs> Yeah, 
So there was another one too. Um, the other thing I heard was stuff that was just I couldn't I scratched my head stuff. So I once heard a, an elected legislator say, uh, and this is a this is his direct quote: "I've never in my life uh, seen how a child could benefit from having breakfast." When that was an argument about there was a bill that would have cut free and reduced fee breakfasts breakfasts for kids in public school, and he stood up and was it was like this is his part of his testimony and his reason he was voting for the bill i've never seen a kid benefit from having breakfast before school I'm goodness like, where do these people come from <laughs> it, what boggles my mind is is people actually vote for people like this uh, that's what i don't get yeah yeah you know, that's the that's the that is the other thing you know it seems like but we it, used to like it seems in the democratic part it seems in the democratic party you have to be an expert in your field, you know, have multiple PhDs and have, have worked in, in a subject for two lifetimes in order to be considered, yeah, he might be able to do the job or she might be able to yeah, do the job. Yeah, viable. Yeah, viable. You know, like like, like Hillary Clinton. I don't think right, there has exactly. ever been a candidate for president that is more qualified unless maybe you're talking about Thomas Jefferson. I mean, here's a woman that had been in the White House, you know, had had led a, a legislative effort, even though it didn't pass. She still led the legislative effort on, you know, uh, health care in the 90s. She's been senator, secretary of state. I mean, good Lord. And, and people are, are questioning her abilities. I was like... No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Yeah. They weren't questioning. At the end of the day, it all can... You can couch it in that, but that was nothing more than blatant misogyny. Yeah, there's been a lot of... A lot of people are going to have to eat the words that they said after this 2016 election because everything that they've talked about for years, they just threw right out the window when they happily voted for Donald Trump. I'm sorry I brought the conversation down. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think that, I think, no, it's 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 actually good because, yeah, I think this is kind of like an extinction burst, right? It's like what happens before something changes, something dramatically changes. In this situation that we're looking at, the, the extinction burst is happening in front of us on the newspaper and in the news and and. You know, we see it every day. We hear it every day. We can't get it out of, can't get away from it. And the result is, is that you have four times as many women running for office than uh, we've ever had before. And we have people who are stepping forward and saying, you know, this is crap that we're living through. We've got to do something about it. we got more um, young people between the ages of 18 and 25 engaged on their own issues, not the issues that we think they, they should be listening to and talking about, yep. but the issues that they themselves actually care about, right? Yep. Who would have thought that, that, you know, the issue of gun violence in schools would be the driving reason that kids are getting registered to vote? It's a good reason. And more, I think it's a great reason. More power I'm to I'm sad that, it's, that it is the reason. Oh, yeah. But... Um, yeah, no, I think it's, I think that, that we're seeing both the extinction burst and, 
and the outcome um, in this in this space and time. But the idea that we have, uh, you're right though, is we judge ourselves so much more harshly because we think that we have to have a, a you know a couple of PhDs and a you know a few years of studying macroeconomics before we can even step up and say whether or not we should be running for office. Meanwhile, you know, the leadership of the Arkansas legislature has a has a 16 percent rate of um, higher education. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. The, 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 the best I can come up with teachers is somebody who taught Bible school at a you know, one room church. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, it's pathetic. That's absolutely right. Uh, so, but you know, women. Hold on, real, uh, real quick, and then we'll go yeah, to, with your question. You go right ahead. Women used to be five, two years ago. You would have to ask a woman to run for office five times. She would have to be asked five times, and the conversation would be like, she would think about it, and she would say, "But I'm going to take care of my kids, and I've got a husband. I've got to make sure the house is running, and everything works just right." And then the same people would go out and recruit guys to run for office. They'd have to be asked once, and their response would be, huh, I think that sounds like a really great idea. <laughs> yeah. Right? None of this, i got to check with my wife, I've got the kids to think about, I've got, you know. No, it's just, hey, that sounds like a great idea, I think I'll do it. Yeah, well, that just <laughs> that just shows you right there that the brain of a woman is more evolved than the brain of a man. <laughs> well, this year, now, now, it's... Almost, it's like men have to stop and think about this because they risk losing because the electorate is not interested in maintaining the status quo. You have a better chance of getting elected today if you are an African American or a woman than you do than you did five years ago. Yeah, most definitely. Now, now we need a bunch right? of African American women. We could clean the slate. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Let me get your opinion on this, and you might tell me I'm just totally wrong. Uh, I, I believe I live in the Arkansas's first district, and the first district yep. of Arkansas has voted Democratic since 1890. It was only until uh, 2014, I believe it was 2014. When uh, it's twenty, it was twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Okay, when twenty twenty twelve, when Rick Crawford ran, which was during you know the whole hubbub of of uh, Obamacare, the Obamacare scare, I call it, where everybody was. And he was twenty ten. Been twenty ten. Yeah, I think it was twenty ten. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, before Rick Crawford, there hadn't been a Republican elected from this district. For over a hundred years, and today I'm hearing a, a Democrat can't get elected from Arkansas's first district, and I tell them that they're they're full of because you know the electorate has not changed that dramatically in that time. Now, I I, I totally am convinced that 2008 caused a lot of people around here to just lose their mind because a black man was in the White House. And let's face it, you know, a lot of Democrats around around this area are, are racist to the bone. And just because they're a Democrat doesn't mean 
that they're not racist. So in that regard, I can see where a lot of used to be Democrats are now Republicans. But I don't I don't think that the first district by far is is it as Republican as everyone thinks. They just haven't had a good Republican candidate or a good Democratic candidate. I mean, and this this year is going to be a big test because not only do we have a good Democratic candidate, but he's you know his he's the son of immigrants from India, so we're going to test that that racism again in, in the first district here. But I think he if he doesn't win by a big margin. He's not going to lose by a very big margin. That's my opinion. I don't know what you so, think about it. No, I don't think you're far off. I think that I think that the Democrats were actually Dixiecrats, and they prove a a theory a theory of mine, which is that all politics is really local. And if you know, if you if I remember Bill Alexander, just as clear as day. And I remember that I, I know that, you know, at the time that Bill Alexander was in Congress from the first congressional district, it was shaped differently. Right. Yeah. And the the way it was drawn was much different. And you and it was a and it was a different era. Right. We didn't have to think about the same social issues. Right. And the only I think the biggest issue that was on the forefront was was abortion. And that was being fought by people who had been in the midst of the whole choice debate. And Gloria Steinem was still, you know, was like a heroine of people. And um, people knew who Margaret Sanger was, right? You don't, if you go up to somebody who's not involved in, in the movement, who's not involved with Planned Parenthood or who's not, like, engaged in some way... And ask them who Margaret Sanger is. They're not going to be able to tell you. Yeah, they're not going to have they're a clue, gonna, are they? They're, they're not going to be able to tell you who Gloria Steinem is. No, for the most part, right? And so that's kind of the the problem is that now the issues are not just choice, not just, um, and and certainly you know we we have the issue of equality, and it's an issue of equality for pay and equality for gays and lesbians, equality for transgender people, um, and and it's more challenging, right? The other thing that I think is evident in the in the Northwest and the Northeast is you can't swing a dead cat in Jonesboro without hitting a church. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anywhere you in know? the Northeast, Arkansas. It, right. Churches, so, and, and, churches and, and used car lots. Yeah, the bigger the better, right? Yeah. And so... Um, you and I used to go out to Shoney's, or I would go out to Shoney's on Caraway Drive, and, and I'd be sitting there minding my own business, and somebody would come up to me at some point during the conversation and say, hey, are you saved? And even if I, even though I was shy, I was still a wise-ass, and I, I would always say, from what? You know, and, and it was this, so this evolution of, of conservatism I give credit to the fact that the Democrats were actually Dixiecrats and, and were as racist as they come and were Democrats solely because their grandfather and grandmother were Democrats. Um, and Democrats were for the farmers. They were for the rural people. They were, they were speaking up and fighting for the economic justice of folks. 
but they had no confrontation on the social issues. And now you've got the people that were um, in that era, that bubble between having, then they didn't have to fight for anything, right? Yeah. I mean, we've been really lucky for the last 50 years that we didn't have to fight for anything. And now we're in a different world. We have to fight for our lives. Yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of complacency, in the, especially in the the latter part of the 20th century, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, you know, I think it was complacency in one in one hand. I mean, even the even the organizers of union organizers got complacent in the 70s and 80s. Um, and it wasn't until new leadership came along and said, we got to start organizing again, that things started to change there. But by then, it was so late, it was really like a losing battle. Yeah. But, you know, and, and the world changes so quickly. Um, but the the idea that, you know, now that we, that it really wasn't that, so there's a couple of things going on. The first is, we're, when I'm training for when I'm training people to run campaigns and do political work, I do an exercise that I call the little guy exercise, in which I draw a figure of a person, and I make people actually define who the person is, and then we go through a step. Uh, we go through a whole process of defining what their issues, their interests, and their values are, because we go around requiring and asking a lot of people, and we don't stop to think about the impact of the world on those people's lives. But when you are living in Arkansas and you've got two kids and you ha- you're, they're, you're, the, they're, you're a product of a failed marriage or for whatever reason doesn't work out, the husband's not in the picture or there's nobody else in the relationship with you to help you, you've got to work, get the kids to school, get the kids home, get the kids fed, pay your insurance, put a roof over their head, all on your own, when are you going to have time to do anything else yeah. or be engaged in anything else? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And as long as we don't recognize that and as long as we don't give people something to hope for and something to work towards that's positive, then we're always going to be faced with these issues. We have to stop telling people what we think they need to hear in order to get them engaged and start listening to people. That was the biggest mistake in 2016, was that we didn't listen enough and we didn't acknowledge enough. We just assumed that nobody in their right mind would vote for Donald Trump yeah. and that everybody was just going to vote for Hillary and that we'd have our first president who was a woman, followed by, you know, that directly followed the first president who was African-American. And that the American population was going to be okay with it. And, you know, the majority of the message coming into the general election was, you really don't have to worry about this. You just have to vote for me so I can get into office and take care of you. Yeah. Instead of, instead of, you know, hey, what's going, hey, Rust Belt, knowing that your whole economic system is going away, you know, what's going, you know, what's happening in your life? Tell me what your life is like, right? Right. Nobody asked. There were no questions asked by Robbie Mook's crew on 
to voters saying, you know, what are the issues you think about when you're making your decision on who to vote for? It was merely the assumption that because the majority of the people living in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Ohio were working-class people who came from a working-class background, they would be voting for the Democrat because that's historically what's happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, 2016 told us that, you know, history does not always go your way. So it was a sad, no. sad realization, but I think it I think it opened up a lot of eyes to the fact that, number one, you know, the Democratic Party has got got to work on their messaging and voter outreach. And number two, they've, they've got to figure out a way to, to talk to young people. And I think the young people have they they took the reins on that. They we don't have to worry about it. They did somewhat, but but we cracked the code on that in Bernie's campaign. Yeah, that you did. Cracked the code on how to communicate with with people like from any walk of life on Bernie's campaign, and it's always been the same response. Like when you ask the question, "How do you get to them?" The answer is you 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 got to go where they are. Right. Right, yeah, that, and that means that you not expect them to come to you. You can't mail a, a person that's twenty three years old. You cannot mail them eight postcards, four colored postcards with your message on it, and expect them to respond to it because it, they just won't. Right, that's not how you actually communicate with them. But on the Sanders campaign, on Bernie's campaign. We figured out that if you you actually you actually can do peer to peer texting and engage people in the way that they want to be engaged. People that I mean, and this was two years ago. So let's you know fast forward two years. These are now people. These are young. The young electorate, the young changing electorate, are majority minority. They're engaged in a way that's different. They don't like to talk on the telephone, but they do love to text. Yep. So let's go that route instead of mailing them that they don't want to read. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that in 2014. In, in 2014, I was, I had decided to, to cut my cable cord, you know, I, I was going to do yep. every, everything internet, so you know I had yep. a I had a Hulu subscription in 2014. Every program that I watched in 2014, there was at least two or three ads with Tom Cotton, and yep. nothing from uh, Blanche Lincoln. Yep. Every, every time I went online, it was Mark Pryor. It wasn't Blanche. It was Mark Pryor. Bozeman beat Blanche Lincoln. Oh, well, I had it backwards. I thought he was ran against against Blanche. That's why Cotton's up in twenty twenty. Who, whoever Tom Cotton was running against, you never saw them on online when you when you watched Hulu. There was there was never the other side. No, it was un, it was unchallenged. Yeah, and I decided right then that I am I'm going to do something, you know, myself. <laughs> and now I, yeah. I've, I've had my little blog since 2007. This is about the third iteration of my little internet show here. I, I never could get the get the 
the groove of it and what I wanted to do. But, you know, come 2014, and I, I, I saw what was happening, and I said, I'm going to do something about this. So now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bad-mouthing the Democratic Party. For two years, I tried to get in contact with people at the state level. Not to, you know, I didn't want no funding or anything. I've got a good job. I can pay for my little hobby myself. I just wanted the contacts. I wanted, I wanted them to put me in contact with people who were running so that I could talk yep. to them and I could do what I've been doing here. And I never, I never even got an email back. I, I would call, leave messages, nothing. So finally, you know, back in January, I was like, to hell with this. I'm, I'm going to see what I can do on my own. And I started reaching out and I, I had the, the wonderful fortune of running into Gwen Combs. And uh-huh. Gwen put me in contact with Maureen Skinner, Chinton Desai, Jared Henderson, and the, the ball just started rolling. And now I don't have time to, to do all the editing and talk to all the people that I need to talk to. That's great. I would like to I would like to be able to promote it, but you know, when when you get right down to it, what what would the audience be for a progressive talk show on politics in Arkansas? I don't, I, don't, I, I may uh, be at about so my this limit. This is the problem with you being in the Northeast. <laughs> There's a way you can actually create the audience, and and you'd be surprised because one of the things I learned when I was running Bernie's campaign here is that I would have a conversation at least with two or three people on a daily basis. And they would they would all be from people who lived outside of Little Rock, and they'd go like this. They would start out with, you know, I really I really love Bernie's ideas and his theories and stuff, but um, I'm really afraid to put a sign out because I think I'm the only person in my in my area that uh, appreciates his viewpoints, and I'm afraid that I'll get my car keyed if I if I put a bumper sticker on it and. I'll get my house egged if I put a sign out. The, the unique thing was that I was hearing these conversations from two or three people in the same community on a weekly basis. Yeah. And all I wanted them to do was actually just to step out and say, you know, hey, I, I'm a progressive and I support these issues. And be surprised at the number of people who have joined with them, Right. So that's what I wanted people to do. And at the, at the you know, at the end of it, in, in February of 2016, I guess, yeah, that's right, we had 20,000 people who had contributed to Bernie's campaign from Arkansas. And so that tells me that we're not alone in our ideas. We're not alone in, in our belief of a progressive uh, future. We just have to figure out how we connect everybody. Yeah. Yeah, we just have to figure out how to how to get people out of their little silos, out of their out of their you yeah, know, the, back rooms of fear and get them talking about the issues. Yeah, that that's why I see the I see the online communities that are developing. Back back when we were kids, you had you had community communities. You know, you we had well, we had we the metal we ran we, up and yeah, down metal. Right. And you had Jonesboro, and you had Valley View, and and you know every, right. so, everybody I knew mean, everybody. Yeah. We don't have that anymore. People, I, I don't, I don't even know my neighbors, and I've lived in this house for four years. <laughs> that's it's sad, but that's just reality today. 
If you're going to find community, it's going to be online now, and that's that's what I, my hope is with this little thing. You want you want to know my, what my real dream is? I want to see a straight talk Arkansas or straight talk Oklahoma. I want to see somebody doing what I'm doing in every congressional district in the country. Today on your show, you had Blake Ross on. Well, I spoke to him yep. a, a few months ago, and I told him I knew they were fixing to have a, a conference, and I said, whatever you do, get some people involved in podcasting. The, that's where that's where young people get their entertainment. If they're not going to, yeah. they're not going to listen to Bill Donahue like we did when we were a kid. They're going to download Pod Save America or something and listen to that. Well, they can just as easily download my show. They can just as easily go on Facebook and watch yours. And I think that's something yeah, that I've, they want to do. I've been trying to figure out how to get a how to you know construct a podcast like the show, right? Yeah, I mean we, that's that's a that's in that way. I started it because. I started the whole thing because I was really tired of hearing about right-wing radio and how they were going on about how horrible the world was. Um, And it's like there's nothing to counter that message. Yeah. Well, you remember Air America Radio, right? Yeah. When Air America Radio was going strong, we had a little democratic resurgence. You know, we we got Barack Obama elected when Air America Radio was going. If we can get people doing this we can counteract right ring radio because 18 19 year olds if they're listening to anything in their car it's not rush limbaugh it's not sean hannity they're listening to pod save america or they got spotify going on their phone and or pandora spotify yeah. for the old folkies okay like you and me. <laughs> pandora's for the young ones you can you can do podcasts on on those just as easily as as you can anything else so I really think that if the Democratic community, let's say, if we want to really counteract right-wing right wing radio, this is the way to do it. Because we ain't got the money. All the money, you know, all the corporate money is going to the, to the Republican Party. And I've, I've done proved that you can do this on a shoestring budget. So everybody I talk to, I try to, I try to tell them, you know, if you, if you have any influence at all, tell people to... You know, they need to get behind podcasting. Yeah, I really think you're right. I think that's kind of the future. This is our internet radio podcasting everything. <laughs> and I'm on the vanguard in Arkansas anyway. <laughs> there you go. That's really true. What would you suggest to people who, who want to work behind the scenes for candidates? How would you point them in, in a good direction to go, how to get involved? Oh, it's it's easy. It's very easy, actually. So the the skills that you need to actually do political work include, but are not limited to, uh, the same skills that you skills that you use to breathe. Was basically it, right? If you can breathe, you can actually do this work. The thing I would recommend to people is that with the advent of social media and the growth of of our web-based trainings. There's an organization that I work with that's called the National Democratic Training Committee, MDPC. You can find it at traindemocrats.org. And they have a full training curriculum. They have everything online. And it's free. All you have to do is sign up and say that you will someday run for office. 
and there are um, training modules that go that that start at the novice and go on to the uh, you know experienced. And you, I mean, that there's never been anything like this before. So I would say go on to go, you know get trained. Find either if you're a good, if you want to do it by web based, then do a web based training. If you want to do a live training, check out any of the training organizations that exist. The uh, whether it's National Democratic Training Committee, we work we work specifically with the state parties, um, or Wellstone Action, or uh, OFA, or uh, DFA. Like any of these organizations would actually be great starting locations. And if 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 once you get past that or once you feel you're in a comfort zone, then then you need to do uh, the hard work, the really hard work, which is um, volunteering on a regular basis for a campaign. It's like apprenticeship. you got to start, and you start at the bottom. And starting at the bottom means you, you are the person who's making the phone calls to recruit the volunteers to come in and make additional phone calls. Or you are the person who's working with the finance team and you're doing all the copying of all the checks or, you know, there, there's just all these jobs that have to happen that candidates can't afford to pay somebody to do that. There's a dependency on volunteers doing them. So you have to get in and get your, you just have to get in and get involved. And from there, then you go like, as you work and as you volunteer, you'll get more and more responsibilities. And it's just like an apprenticeship in, you know, when you're working at the journeyman trades, you have to get your, you have to get your foot in the door to do this work. Once you get and you understand and you've been a field organizer, um, then you move up to being a field director and you move up to being a state field director and then you move up, you, you just have to be willing to actually put the time in to do all the things that need to be done. The other thing that you that helps is if you have flexibility in traveling, right? Because there is a campaign happening all the time. It, it, you just get it, staying involved and getting involved is what really works. How do you pick yourself back up after working your heart off for a campaign and losing? Because it, it's it's going to happen if you work enough campaigns. You know, not everybody's going to win. So how do you how do you well, keep that yeah. level of engagement? Look, I, I was a Democrat during the Bush era. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you and, and frankly, the campaigns that I worked on that did win, two of the three people ended up going to prison. So <laughs> it's like, you didn't you didn't tell me you worked in Illinois politics. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I was on Blagojevich's campaign. I think. Um, they, I think what three of the last four governors of Illinois have gone to prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I worked for. I was on Blagojevich. I was also on Kwame Kilpatrick in Detroit, and and so you know they've had their own problems. <laughs> um, that was a long time ago. I think getting back to your to your point, the way you pick yourself up is by not thinking about that one race that you lost, but actually thinking about the changes in the lives of the people that you impacted. You have to define when the best way you possibly can. For me, um, for the years that I was working for the Service Employees International Union, it was changing people's lives whose 
who were impacted by the work we were doing and training people to, to do a job that was outside of their job that they've been doing that wasn't actually lifting them up. That made the big difference for me. I mean, I would I could take a kick in the tooth, a kick in the teeth, if I knew that there was some good to come out of it. What criteria to, do you use to measure a success? That's a really good question because I have to think about it in the sense of the things that have made me feel really good and feel like I was successful um, were, were like basically what I touched on earlier, which has helped move people and either help them either find a way to sustain themselves in a new skill and a new job that was better for, for what they were before to um, knowing that I impacted, I, I, I helped impact people's lives and make their lives better, right? That that to me is, is success. Well, it sounds like a is, success to me. And it, it can't be, yeah, it can't be defined by, the person like supporting one person who got more votes than the other. It's more defined on, um, did I make the world a better place? Can't ask for any more. Did my one, one little thing make the world a better place. All right. Sarah Scanlon, I, I really enjoyed this, this time speaking with you and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. All right. Well, that was Sarah Scanlon. Now, be sure to, to look at the blog post, and you'll see a bunch of links to all the, the organizations that she mentioned, like Wellstone Action, OFA, DFA, TrainDemocrats.org. Uh, you'll find all of the links to those organizations in the blog post accompanying this podcast. And remember, we've got an election coming up. The primaries are May the 22nd. Early voting starts on May the 7th. Remember to get out there and vote and bring a friend. Every time I hear the people cry Don't you know that the man is gonna lie I try to tell them that they have a choice